My name is Michael Campbell. Welcome to Money Talks. Money Talks is brought to you by Solera Club. Solera Club is a, uh, it's in the technology field, but it's a royalty-based investment, which means the investors get paid first and there are no fees attached to it. Check it out. Go and find more information by going to soleraclub.com. Well, we've been warned the BS avalanche is about to happen. We're going to get a federal election, looks like October 19th. And when it comes to economics and finance, I'll tell you, the BS meter during an election is going to go off the charts. I mean, it's already started with certain ads on the air. It will be a goldmine of self-serving, wishful thinking, misleading statements, half-baked ideas by politicians and special interest groups. All of it based on their undying belief in our stupidity. And sadly, there's a lot of people who are determined to prove them right on that score. And just so you understand, I don't care which party you support. I'm talking about the consequences of economic and financial policy. My concern isn't the political, the political parties and their fortunes. My concern is you. I have no doubt that over the course of the election campaign, I'm going to get lots of opportunity to point out misleading and self-serving or outright ignorant statements. But let me start with one of the biggies. Let's set the stage. And that biggie says or suggests that the federal government controls the economy. I mean, I cringe even more when I hear members of the media buying into that nonsense with questions like, who do you think will manage the economy best? Well, it's like that we're electing the Wizard of Oz, and somehow we're going to elect somebody to stand behind the curtain, pull the levers, and presto, the economy's going to grow. As I said, I'm going to have lots of opportunity during the course of the campaign, but let me start by pointing out just three things that are important. One, the only tools available to government, to the federal government, are taxation, regulation, and intervention. Maybe I should repeat that because I think it's a key to understanding the limitations of what governments can do, what impact they can have on the economy. Government's only tools are taxation, regulation, and intervention. And all three of these are detrimental to growth in the private sector. Higher taxes always restrict private sector growth in favor of the public sector. And here's another one that I think is absolutely misunderstood. But tax increasing taxes is always deflationary. And we're seeing both consequences, by the way, on display in weakened economic growth stats throughout the Western world. And by the way, the chief reason that we've been correct on money talks and predicting lower interest rates, especially at the beginning of 2014, when literally the massive consensus rates were going up, we've been predicting weaker economic growth. Well, it's because of the understanding of the impact of higher taxes when you take into account all three levels of government. I'll give you a quick example. Come on, coming into January, early February, we got told by a ton of analysts that we'd get this burst of consumer spending because of the fall in gasoline prices. Well, I said right from the get-go, that would not be happening. Why? Because governments had already announced enough tax increases or other transfer increases to earmark or to eat up a good chunk of those savings. Then you throw on the impact of the falling loony, which forced all the rising prices for the imports, and presto, there was nothing left over from the gas savings to spend, but it starts with our understanding of what taxation does to the economy. Well, number two. The next issue in the parade of misleading statements is what I just alluded to, is to focus only on the federal government, when in fact provincial and municipal governments also play a significant role here. I mean, any political party could institute pro-growth policies at the federal level, but they could be sabotaged at the provincial and municipal level. 
higher provincial taxes and more regulations and you know provinces like Alberta, New Brunswick and, uh, and Ontario are going to have a significant negative impact on economic growth and it doesn't matter what the feds do. Number three, there's going to be lots of promises by campaigning politicians of government action to create jobs or support specific industries. But what won't be talked about is the overall impact of taking money from successful businesses to prop up failed ones. See, the bottom line is that intervention comes at a cost. If the government is borrowing the money to pay for the intervention, then all it's doing is taking money from future tax revenues, thereby hurting future economic growth. If it's using current tax revenue, then it's impacting individual and businesses spending today. Now here's the other problem though, and it's a biggie, is that the government intervention is almost never motivated by what's best for the economy. Instead, political considerations dictate where the money goes. I mean, I was just looking at the numbers that were gathered by some media's parliamentary bureau chief, David Aiken, uh, yesterday alone. 84 checks worth $839 million were designated for conservative ridings. Another 53 only, 53.8 million for NDP ridings and 68.6 million for liberal ridings. You don't think that politics is dictating where some of that money goes? Now, come on, Europe's flatlining growth and massive unemployment, I think, are giving us a pretty good illustration of how ineffective and dangerous the government intervention high tax model is. But despite the evidence, I'm always smiling when I see public sector unions actually believing that governments do create jobs. Again, just look at France. Socialist government, big spender, into big deficits. And the number of people without jobs has risen 80 consecutive months. But that doesn't seem to register. Yeah, the government creates public sector jobs, but it comes at the expense of private sector ones and economic growth. But that brings me to the biggest ace in the hole during this election campaign. It's great for parties promising more intervention, more taxation, and that's our willingness to, uh, to forego critical thinking and good old-fashioned common sense. i got to take a break. I'm coming back. Michael Levy is going to be with me. Top three stories that smart people are talking about. Hey, also this. I'm going to do quotes today. Coming up to the top of the hour, I've got three quotes I want to share with you that uh, two of them scare the heck out of me, and the other two are a tribute to one of the great thinkers of the last hundred years when it comes to economics and finance. I'll take a break as I say, Michael Levy on deck, stay with us. Hey, coming up, I'm looking forward to this. Martin Mirenbild's going to be with me, uh, Chief Economist for Dundee Wealth Management. Hey, there is so much to talk about. Every week it feels that way. Of course, that's because we're getting incredible volatility. I'm going to start with gold with him, though, and move on to the markets and the general economy, Canadian dollar, etc. He'll be with me, as I say, after the top of the hour. Michael Levy joins me right now. Top three things that smart people are talking about. Mike, let me have it. What's well, number Mike, three? Mike, I know you've talked about this several times in the last couple of weeks, but just wrap your head around this one. We've got Ontario is now the world's uh, most indebted sub-sovereign borrower, which means that it's not an individual country, but sub-sovereign within a country, a state, a province. Ontario is the world's largest sub-sovereign borrower, and you know what? We have a pop. They have a population about one third of California, and its debt load is double that of the U.S. biggest state. Yeah, I mean, it is an astounding state. We've, uh, of course, we've got Quebec as the fifth most indebted uh, jurisdiction, and that's a key. And people listening, if you're not listening today from Ontario, then you got to realize. 
what would happen if they have a problem? Well, it'd be very similar to what the debate is in the European Union in that who's going to bail them out? Who's going to come to the rescue financially? So if we get mismanagement in Ontario, obviously the impact's on us too, Mike. Well, it is, Mike. and It's on the whole country. I mean, Ontario is really the economic engine. When you factor out what's gone on in the energy sector, they have $307 billion of bonds outstanding. And if that wasn't enough, they're going to borrow another $130 billion in the next decade for infrastructure spending. Nowhere do we see, Mike, is how are they going to service and pay back that debt? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's going to be the big question right now. I think they service about uh, close to $11 billion a year goes in interest payments. And obviously, uh, that's with record low interest rates. And their financing needs are going to grow this year by their own estimate of around the 85 to $9 billion mark. So, yeah, this is, this is one of those stories, Mike, to be continued. That's for sure. What's number two? Number two is the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership. Now, Mike, that's the free trade agreement. Not free trade agreement, but the trade agreement that Canada is trying to forge out with the U.S. and 11 other Pacific countries. And Mike, I mean, just take a look at this. This is where the future of trade is, not only for Canada, but probably the world, is trans-Pacific between the U.S., Canada, Mexico, and Asian nations. And Canada is trying to forge out a place at that table with some big obstacles. Yeah, I guess the problem is if uh, Mexico and U.S. are both involved in this, and, you know, if they join, it sort of forces Canada's hand. They want to be part of it, too. And as you just said, Mike, you know, they want access to those Asian markets, whether it's, you know, Singapore, obviously, but Australia's involved, Peru, New Zealand, Vietnam, Brunei. I mean, the list is a big one. It is, Mike. And, you know, um, Canada and Mexico and the U.S. are part of the free trade agreement, the North American free trade agreement. But if we don't get on into this one, then we're going to be left behind because basically they will go to free trade agreement 2.0. But there's one huge obstacle. One might wonder why, well, wouldn't Canada just sign on for it? Why wouldn't they be part of it? Why wouldn't we be part of it? But there's a huge lobby, a huge, huge supply management lobby. The dairy farmers, the poultry farmers, the egg farmers, they are against Canada joining on because that means we would have to open up our markets to imports that come from some of those other countries that are within that agreement and that would mean competition on a level that they couldn't stand. Well, I mean, uh, people understand this. They go to the States and they pay less for some of the products you just alluded to. Uh, You know, consumers might be happy with this, but producers certainly won't be. But you're quite right. That seems to be the big sticking point at this point or the big negotiation point at this point from Canada's point of view. It is, Mike. And if we don't join on, and we thought that possibly yesterday, Friday, there would be some sort of an initial agreement. It didn't come to place, but it's going to. They're going to start renegotiating again sometime late this summer or early fall. This is going to happen. It's going to be huge. And I personally just hope that the political interests of some of the political parties in Canada don't stand in the way of joining on to this trade agreement, which is so imperative to Canada, Mike, particularly because our energy sector is suffering so much, and particularly because we have to compete in the world. If we don't join on to this, it's not going to be good news for Canada. 
Well, it's a different political landscape than uh, past when, uh, you know, political parties were railing against any kind of free trade. Uh, I've seen all three parties acknowledge the importance of free trade. I've got the articles and the quotes. Uh, But, uh, you know, it's an election time, so it's going to be very interesting because I know the Liberals have already agreed in principle. And even the NDP, as I say, has acknowledged the importance of free trade, although they may come to the defense of that dairy industry or, or as you say, sorry, the, you know, the entire poultry Dairy, dairy, egg eggs, the whole absolutely. deal industry. So uh, supply management may be under the gun. But that's one of the reasons I don't think we've heard more about this, because it's not the political football it was in the past. What's the number one story? Well, Mike, you can call it, we can call it what you may. You can call it contraction. You could call it shrinking economy. But there is one word. Canada is in recession. And I know I've heard you during the past couple of weeks doesn't make a difference whether uh, we have growth of one-tenth of one percent or contraction of Mm one-tenth of one percent. Those are only numbers, but the overall broader view is the last five months, Canada's economy has been contracting, and it's been contracting at a higher level, a much more uh, a driven level than what any of the analysts have had to say, what the Bank of Canada has forecast. We are in economic trouble here in Canada. Well, and the challenge is, is that the two reasons, uh, main reasons, let's say, are outside of our control. Obviously, no government sets commodity prices or oil prices, even though the absurdity of I hear people suggesting that. I mean, that's just such e- economic ignorance. But the other side is that we need the U.S. to grow, eh, Mike? I mean, uh, you know, you can make all the goods you want, but if no one's buying on the other side, so we got, you know, comatose uh, economic growth in Europe. We've got contraction in China, or, you know, big drop, rather, in their rate of growth. We need the U.S. to continue to grow, but it's still kind of tepid down there. We need them to buy our goods. We do, Mike, and one of the problems is that this should have been happening, and I use that word should, advisedly, with the drop in the Canadian dollar, the significant drop in the Canadian dollar, you would think that our manufacturing industry and our export industry would be growing at a significant rate because with the low dollar, Canada is on sale. Meanwhile, the stat that hit me yesterday out of the GDP growth numbers that came, or contraction numbers that came, is the, uh, the sector that was hit the most was the, the weakest component was manufacturing down 1.7% in May. That compares to the resource sector, oil, mining, which has taken a huge hit this year, only down seven-tenths of one percent. So the uh, manufacturing export down one full percent more than the resource sector and those exports, exports, and I find that very troublesome. Yeah, well, again, we're going to need the U.S. there. As you say, we've made the Canadian dollar uh, make all of our goods attractive. It usually takes a lag period, so let's hope those numbers improve as we go through uh, you know, the third quarter uh, because there is a lag usually between the drop in the currency and the pickup in uh, export. But again, it's all about the U.S. buying of our stuff. Well, Mike, yeah, what- it certainly is, and but, you know, uh, as... Uh, um, was stated yesterday by uh, Doug Porter of the Bank of Montreal. Uh, there's no debating that the steady drumbeat of bad news raises double, raises doubts on that relatively sunny outlook of the Bank of Canada, of the yeah. different analysts and forecasts. But the fact is, is that this is going to weigh more heavily on the Canadian dollar, but also are we going to see another interest rate, a lowering of Canadian interest rates? Yeah. Because unless we pick up, that's not going to happen. 
Well, we'll keep an eye on that. Mike, you'll be here to report on it. Thanks very much. Thanks, Mike. Hey, stay with me. I've got a couple. I'm going to share two quotes with me that scared the heck out of me. But also, uh, I'm paying tribute to one of the great thinkers of the last hundred years. Stay with me. Coming up, Martin Murenbeeld. You know, this week marks the anniversary of one of the great thinkers. Actually, it's his birthday, not an anniversary. Milton Friedman was 103 years old yesterday. Of course, he's not with us any longer, but he would have been 103. His birthday is July 31st. Uh, I just want to share a couple of quotes. He's best known for as a defender of freedom and not big government, so he was vilified for that approach. But I love these two quotes. It's some about some of the huge challenges that we face today. In quote, nobody spends somebody else's money as carefully as he spends his own. Nobody uses somebody else's resources as carefully as he uses his own. So if you want efficiency and effectiveness, if you want knowledge to be properly utilized, you have to do it through the means of private property. End of quote. I mean, isn't one of the huge problems we have when we hear about government waste that there's no way they would have spent that money the same way if it was their own? Let me throw one more at you from Milton Friedman. If you put the federal government in charge of the Sahara Desert, in five years, there'd be a shortage of sand. <laughs> you got to get a kick out of that one. It makes me laugh. Okay, so we got time for just a couple more here, but this is not this is not uh, Milton Friedman. We're talking about you know a couple of quotes that scare the heck out of me. I was doing that earlier, and I was thinking you know one of the big complaints I have is once the public education system turned from one that welcomed critical thinking to one of advocacy advocacy of a, spe- a specific point of view. I see that all the time. Two quotes. Looked at them this past week, been looking to put them into an editorial, haven't yet, but they scare the heck out of me because I think they're accurate. This is Abraham Lincoln. The philosophy of the schoolroom in one generation will be the philosophy of government in the next. Now, is it any wonder that the majority of children graduating seem to be disposed to an anti-capitalist, anti-free trade, anti-business point of view? That's certainly the view of the teachers' unions. Here's a second quote by Frederick Nietzsche. The surest way to corrupt... A youth is to instruct him to hold in higher esteem those who think alike than those who think differently. The surest way to corrupt a youth is to instruct him to hold in higher esteem those who think alike than those who think differently. Well, I say welcome to the world of groupthink that's so prevalent today on economic, financial, and social issues. Welcome to the world of unquestioned loyalty to big governments. Even as our younger generation inherits this incredible debt load, they do so without even a peep. I look at those, and as I say, they scared the heck out of me. i got to take a break. Hey, I've got at least a fun, shocking stat for you today. I think you'll smile at this one. This has got to be, are you kidding me? It happened to government. As I say, I think you'll enjoy it. I've got a goofy award for you, Martin Mirabild, when we come back right after the top of the hour. Stay with us. You're listening to Money Talks on the Chorus Radio Network.